Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists to find out how to write better music. Today's episode is very special for four reasons. One, it's episode number 150. Two, you'll get to hear me talk with the co-host of my favorite music production podcast, the UBK Happy Fun Time Hour. Three, you'll get to hear the results of our MIDI remix quest with commentary from listeners who participated. And finally, this episode is special because I get to announce that this fall, I will be going on a Composer Quest world tour. Yes, that's right. The Kickstarter campaign was fully funded last night, thanks to all you generous backers. And the remaining 30 hours or so will be a chance for those of you who want to get in on the rewards and stretch goals. We currently have two stretch goals to aim for. First, for every $50 raised above $5,000, an album talked about on the show will be added to the USB drive reward. Since we're already $231 above the goal, this means you'll get four albums from episodes one through four. The next stretch goal is 6,000, the Sound Scavenger Hunt. If we hit that, every backer will get to add something to my Sound Scavenger Hunt list. For example, you could ask me to record the sound of an animal I've never heard before, or the sound of 10 didgeridoos, or something more abstract like the sound of happiness. Then I'll attempt to find and record these sounds and incorporate the scavenger hunt into the podcast season. If you want to donate to the campaign, you still have until Wednesday at 7 p.m. Central to visit composerquest.com kickstarter. I can't wait to share this adventure with you in the fall. And again, thanks to all of you who've been so kind to donate through Kickstarter or Patreon to make it happen. My guest today, Gregory Scott, who goes by the moniker UBK, is an audio plugin designer, a music producer, a songwriter, and an excellent podcast host. In our conversation, Gregory talks about how to train your ears to be a better producer, and he shares some practical mixing tips. Generally, using two or three gentle compressors on a crazy dynamic signal like a vocal is uh, far, it preserves a lot more of the integrity of the sound and results in something that's both more pleasing to the ear and easier to mix than something where you apply the same amount of overall compression using one compressor. Gregory also talks about what he likes sonically in different eras of recorded music. It's amazing how so much of the music of any given era was influenced by the technology, the reproductive systems at the time. And in each era, I I just think there's a specific beauty and magic to the things that they were doing. And in the same way that I try to study composers from the different eras and and pull their tricks in, I, I study the engineering and the sounds of the different eras. Stick around for Gregory's answer to the question, what audio effect would you choose if you could only have one? After my talk with Gregory, we'll have the reveal of our MIDI remix quest in a special edition of Charlie's Music Production Lessons. Now, let's get on to my talk with Gregory Scott. I've been listening to your podcast for a few years now, um, really enjoying it. Thank you. What inspired you guys to start it up? Uh, well, I have like somehow a large chunk of my friends that I've made out here in L.A., uh, they've all got their own podcast. It's really a thing in this town. And uh, when I first moved here, like in 2011, 
they all immediately started pouncing on me like, you got to have a podcast. And I didn't, I didn't even know what a podcast was. And I had enough to do anyway. I was like, no, thanks. And at some point, it just started like, it, it infected my mind. I was like, hmm, podcast. Maybe I should do a podcast. And then I had all kinds of ideas for like doing just an actual radio show, you know, like a late night jazz radio show, but not limited <laughs> to jazz. And then I just, one of those things that I wanted to do and never got around to. And whenever I find myself in that kind of a pattern, I realized that I need other people involved. I need to be accountable. And it just so happened, I was in a random conversation with Nathan, who was the tech support guy at Cush. And we were developing a, a kind of a friendship outside of the audio world and the business world. And uh, somehow podcasts came up and I told him I always wanted to do one. He's like, we should do one together. And I was like, all right, cool. And that was how it started. And it just kind of evolved into this thing that seems to be snowballing now. We, we get uh, a lot more listeners every single week, uh, I think, due to the miracle of the iTunes algorithms. <laughs> no, it's yeah. fun. It's definitely a lot of fun. Yeah, it's great. You guys are super smooth and hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so we have, we do, oh. we crack ourselves up, and I think that's always my favorite. Comedians always um, are the ones that are able to laugh at their own jokes. It's amazing how many people who are funny don't ever seem to laugh. They're just funny, you know. And uh, the, what gets me the most is is definitely humor that touches the person who's actually saying it or speaking it. Because then it's just, there's something warmer about it, a little more authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the comedy part is awesome. But, I mean, like, every episode has so many nuggets of wisdom, production-wise and, you know, composing philosophy-wise. No, thanks. Um, and I guess you guys have probably asked, answered, like, almost every flavor of production question out there <laughs> uh, by this time. Ah, uh, people keep people keep coming up with new ones. It 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 will for it'll like for a little bit. We'll be like, hmm, I think we've kind of tapped it, and everything now is variation on a theme. And then like every week or two, somebody will just come out of the woodwork with some kind of a twist, and we're like, oh, that's a really good question, and it'll force us to think. And I think that's my favorite thing about the podcast is it just having this sort of pseudo conversation with the world out there forces me to look at things differently and kind of expand my own toolkit and my own philosophies and ways of, of looking at um, sound production. Sure. Yeah. Have you done any teaching yourself, like f formally or uh, I guess informally or anything? No, I haven't. I think that's another one of the things that I've, I've thought about. Um, anytime I think about something like that, I start to get a little edgy because then I start thinking, well, but that's going to be time away from working on my own stuff. And yeah. that's, you know, that's really, I feel like because of the pace of life these days, I'm in a constant battle to kind of build a little fort around my, my personal time and my art and just protect it from the erosion that the world, because the world will kind of take over everything if you let it these days, especially the internet and communications moving at a million miles an hour. And so I just, um, I don't know, at some point you got to stop. You're like, all right, that's, that's enough other stuff. Let me focus on the things that really make me happy and that feed me. Yeah. Speaking of your own projects, um, I was listening to the track you sent from your new album coming out. Yeah. In and out of time. Yes. A I really like it. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's just a really cool mix of like all these little fills, like guitar and, uh, well, mostly synth fills, I guess. In and 
what is all going on in that track? Uh, you mean like instrumentally or like com- um, compositionally? Yeah, I, what? I guess we could start with like what layers you used and kind of yeah. how well, did you decide to like put certain layers where and <laughs> oh, man. fills where. And this, <laughs> this record has been unlike any project I've ever worked on, either of my own or producing or recording others, um, because it's been such a slow and organic three steps forward, two steps back kind of, uh, I've never really been involved in a project where it just kind of continually evolved and revealed itself to the people involved rather than the other way around. Um, it started with uh, me and my lady, Sarah. We had, she had never written a, a piece of music at all or, or even considered herself a musician until about two years ago when we just kind of randomly, she was, I was like stuck on a song and, and I couldn't really come up with any lyrics that were interesting to me. And she's like, well, could I take a stab at it? I was like, sure. And we kind of discovered overnight that she's just got this brilliant gift for weird lyrical constructs and, and imagery and whatnot. And then it kind of snowballed from there. And so what happened was he just kind of ended up putting a band together. So we're the band leaders, which is kind of cool because we're always in control. But at the same time, we're working with geniuses that are so good that we just opened up the space in terms of who's doing what. And we so we took control and then immediately gave it over, which was really an amazing thing. And so we're, we're actually a band and I'm playing the drums and the roads. We have a guitarist, a bass player, Sarah sings, I sing. So the, the way the songs evolved is we would start out with me and Sarah uh, and an iPad's built-in microphone and an acoustic guitar. And we would just kind of write something and not be very precious about it because we figured everything was going to change probably more than once. And once we had this sort of seed of an idea of a song, it didn't really matter how great it was or if it moved us or if everything was spot on, then we would bring the players in and we would start to work on an arrangement and a delivery and a vibe. The groove would change. Everything would start changing right away. And then we would lay down initial tracks for that. And then as the tracks were laid down, we would realize, well, now this song kind of wants a different tempo and groove. So I would relay a new drum track and then we would bring the players back in and lay the same instruments over kind of a different feel. And in the process, we would realize, oh, the guitars could actually be laid back more here. And so we were just constantly like reworking and refining and massaging. And one common theme emerged through every single revision of the songs, which was space. We were like, how can we open up more space? How can we simplify everything and still retain or even increase the amount of emotional drama and impact? And we evolved this style, which I think you referenced when you listened to this track, of really like almost every instrument in the mix is playing some kind of call and response with everything else. And it's kind of in a, in a really interesting arrangement style because there's very little interference with the instruments, with the frequencies, which makes mixing a dream. And that's kind of how I, I, I think of myself these days is I, I, I'm a decent mixer and an excellent arranger. And as a result, my mixes sound really good. Um, and I guess it's just so much easier to mix something that's been arranged intelligently. So yeah, yeah with that song there, as with all the songs, what went where was a process of uh, probably, I want to say we wrote 80 songs to get eight and the eight songs that we have were rewritten either partially or completely probably a dozen times. Huh. So I, I have no idea exactly how any individual part ended up where it is. It was such a strange and Byzantine process. Hmm. Do you feel like the other 
72 tracks that aren't going to make it on the album. <laughs> uh, are you sad about those? Or? <laughs> Not in the least. No. <laughs> uh, although, I guess, like, lyrically, we do have a separate kind of a notebook that we keep running tabs on of our favorite phrases or stanzas or even entire verses or hooks that kind of, they got cut. Not because they weren't good, but because they weren't ideal for everything else that was happening around it. So we saved all of those bits and bobs. Same thing, I have a few drum grooves that like will get recycled later. So yeah, all the best of stuff that didn't quite make the cut for the record this time around will likely show its head and inform something in the future. Cool. Yeah. Not just like a outtakes mashup at the end of the album. Uh, no. <laughs> No, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a slap. Part of like the only way we were able to get through a process this involved and this recursive was to be brutal, just slash and burn. Um, like even down to I know the digital workflow these days is everything piles up and you've got all your data and it's all backed up and preserved and you can go back to your previous versions or dig up this old. I delete. Hmm. I, I cut my teeth on analog tape, and part of that philosophy of the workflow still is in my genetics. So if we're recording musicians, um, like I don't record MIDI. I just record audio out of keyboards. I'm not interested in editing much of anything after the fact. I want it dialed when it's printed. And if it's not, we'll redo it and we'll do whatever it takes. But I don't want a bunch of tracks piled up. I don't want a bunch of data clogging my hard drives. And so the, the musical parts themselves, as well as the data that represents most of it, is gone forever. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's probably kind of hard for people... It's jarring. Uh, who are, it, yeah. Yeah. It's, out of, it's I mean, definitely I, out of sync. Yeah. And it would surprise the musicians uh, that, who were pro. Like, we're in L.A., so we're kind of blessed to be working with some serious professional players. And they've done this all a million times. They come in, and, and like keyboard players are always shocked that I'm not hooking up the MIDI cables or capturing that data. And then if we just run the song three or four times, and we kind of got a cool groove, but it's not it, I'll just delete the whole screen. And, and they're just like, did you just delete that? I'm like, yeah, it's, it wasn't right. Let's keep going. And uh, hmm. it just, it, all that stuff, it makes it so much simpler down the line because you can't, you can't backtrack, which I would do. I would, I would constantly second guess or maybe that was better. Maybe, blah, blah, blah. so I just kind of, I, I cut those options off at the heels and they could never grow roots and, and then I'm safe and I kind of box myself into a corner and then you kind of have to get it done. You're like, this is all I got to work with, so make it work. Yeah. So, as a producer and mixer, how early in the songwriting process do you think about what the mix is going to sound like? Oh, uh, immediately. Immediately, yeah. I'm, when, I, when I record, when I track, because this is, to me, arrangement and mixing are so intertwined and so blurred in my brain, I can't separate them out. Uh, because in the days before I was really cognizant of, of arranging, I struggled to mix my songs because things were just interfering in ways that I didn't fully understand how or why. So when I record now, if I have the musicians in and the drums are down and a scratch vocal's down and then I got a bass and a guitar and maybe another guy coming in to play some scratch roads for me while I'm just sitting there doing the engineering and calling the shots... Um, I'm building a mix as they're playing, and if I can't get a mix to kind of pop out of the speakers nicely while we're recording, that to me is an indicator that the part, something in the music itself isn't right. It's like, sure, I could, I could maybe do a high-pass filter on the bass to get rid of that thump, or maybe we could move the bass part up the neck a little bit. You know? And so I'm, I'm always trying to find 
performance and arrangement and compositional solutions to the mix. Yeah. That for me is like when MIDI is super helpful, like when I'm doing film scores and like, oh, wait, all I have to do is just bring this up an octave or something yeah. or down an octave and suddenly the director's like, oh, yeah, that works. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's the, that's I, I think the, the main reason that when we have players in to record things, I don't want to be playing an instrument or performing anything. So if it's a song that I'm singing on, they'll be playing to a scratch vocal that's recorded. Is because I need all of my brain resources to go into listening to what's happening in the room and, and coming out of the speakers. Because I'm able to make clear judgments that way. If I have to perform or if I'm involved in the writing of the music per se, um, then precious brain cycles are being diverted away from paying attention to the actual sound field. And so, I, yeah, it's, I've kind of insulated myself from harm by being able to focus extremely on what's happening. And, and so I'll realize in the moment at, that we're recording, oh, that needs to be an octave higher because it's literally stepping on the guitars kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. What advice do you have for newer producers and arrangers who are trying to improve their ears for listening for these frequency type things? Hmm. Uh, I guess maybe two things I would say. The first is expand the music that you're listening to and in particular studying. Like it doesn't necessarily need to be for enjoyment, but uh, all throughout recorded music history and even before recorded music, when there was notated music, there's just been masters of the craft who have made things work and have made things popular and that have stood the test of time. And I, I strongly urge everybody who makes music on any level to really study all the forms and figure out what it is about those forms that made them work and try to incorporate that in your own way into what you're doing. Kind of a trap that I think a lot of uh, younger up-and-coming musicians and producers fall into right now is their level of influence is only one step removed. They they have, like, if, say, they're into EDM, there's a handful of DJs that they're really into, and there's a handful of electronic music composers that they're into, and that's as far as their influences extend. And so the music that they create isn't going to be able to stretch that bubble very far at all. And so I, I think if you can get into who influenced the people that you're influenced by you stretch it out go a couple generations out and even forms that you're not at all into that you don't even find pleasant listen to some jazz and figure out like what the jazz composers are doing that makes jazz work um it bringing in all those influences i think really just helps you to be actually more authentic ironically you can you can find aspects of yourself that you didn't you weren't aware of because what you were literally tuning your ear into was a little uh, narrow in scope so that i guess that would be the a yeah. the a side of the puzzle um and then the b side of the puzzle is to take a couple of your favorite like all-time favorite pieces of music and try to recreate them from the ground up bit for bit part for part sound for sound tit for tat everything so try to match if it's if you're doing an electronic or a techno thing try to match the kick drum sound the snare drum sound all the pads the panning the, the just everything and you'll learn you will learn things because you'll be like oh wait a minute he's doing this thing here that i didn't even notice before why is he doing that oh he's doing that because it lifts the energy up there and oh i didn't notice that two things actually dropped away in this section and that's why the space opens up and the bass becomes more prominent etc so you just You'll learn all kinds of things by literally re recreating it uh, 
it's it's a really amazing yeah. exercise. That's cool. I I was reading one of your interviews and they asked you about like what are some of your biggest musical influences and I love that you went through almost every decade in the mm. past like 70 years and described from an engineer's perspective almost like what about those styles you really liked yeah like, orally yeah. and uh i'm as or more into sound as i am into music and sometimes i think i'm a musician and a composer as as an excuse to record sound and mix it you know it's um the older I get, maybe that's becoming less true because I'm becoming more of a master of, of musical instruments and, and the other parts of the craft. But yeah, the, when I listen to f the 40s, um, it's, it's amazing how so much of the music of any given era was influenced by the technology, the reproductive systems at the time. Like, you know, there radios back in the 40s had like one big speaker, usually like a 12 inch speaker. And if you ever get a chance to listen to like a Bing Crosby recording on an old floor standing tube radio that has a 12 inch speaker and his dirty old tube amps, his voice, it fills the room up. There's no, there's nothing over, I don't know, even 4K has been as high as it goes and it rolls off a cliff. Hmm. Uh, and yet it's so present and so massive. It just like, cause the engineers, everybody heard, that's how they heard sound at the time. You know, they, the reproduction systems at the time sounded a certain way, so the engineers in the studios went for a certain sound, and they reached for artists that were able to kind of fit into that mold. And as the technologies evolved through the decades, everything fed back into itself. So as uh, three-way speaker systems with crossovers became the norm, engineers started to extend the frequencies in both directions, and microphones became more extended uh, throughout the 70s and then the 80s, higher fidelity, lower noise, less distortion, etc. And in each era, I, f I just think there's a specific beauty and magic to the things that they were doing. Um, and in the same way that I try to study composers from the different eras and, and pull their tricks in, I, I study the engineering and the sounds of the different eras. And I think back from 1977 and earlier, there was one thing in particular that's really kind of been lost today that it's really a sort of a, a mission of mine right now is they mixed so aggressively and so unbalanced because they weren't compressing the snot out of especially the mix bus. And so sometimes you just listen to these little recordings and when it's time for the guitar solo, it's like the guitar is so freaking loud. And <laughs> today, music is really pressed into a very kind of small square space in between the speakers and nothing ever really pokes out too far and nothing recedes very far either and sometimes i just i think that that i don't know we've lost a bit of the drama so like in the in the mix that i sent you and what we're doing on, on the next record i've sent that to a few engineers half of them love it they're like how did you do this and they'll ask me specific questions the other half are like i think that this thing is sticking out a little too far and that other thing is a little buried and i'm just like well yeah exactly that's exactly what i'm going for so i'm I'm really happy that that's the kind of response that I'm getting because that's, I think that's, uh, I don't know. I think the world could use a little more drama. Yeah, definitely. Well, and yeah, there's one instrument um, that maybe like the one that pops out at me is like a kind of loud synthy, like a hair out of tune almost. Um, oh, yeah. All my synths are detuned. They're all detuned. <laughs> Yeah, gives the track a ton of character. 
Thanks. Yeah, character's what it's all about for me. talking about like all the decades and what you liked about them you mentioned that like in 2011 mixers were doing something different with to make their tracks like more dynamic but not smashed into the the box you're talking yeah. about earlier yeah you know loudness everything's always been getting louder in the recorded music world um something very interesting happened in the late 90s when waves came out with the l1 and the the it was which was the first digital brick wall limiter at least i think it was on maybe my history is slightly wrong but right around that era we started limiting things digitally and pushing up against that digital ceiling and as with all things technology uh, the first thing that happens is people are just like oh my god you can do this and then they really do it and so for the next probably like 10 years up until like the late 2000s 2007 or 8 things just kept getting louder and louder and less and less dynamic and so it, everything was getting smaller it was an interesting time for music recorded music because it was loud and tiny and so it had this quality for my ears at least where no matter how quiet i made it it still was annoying <laughs> it's just like i can't make this quiet enough um and then something i just think because humans are what they are and everybody's passionate and zealous in their pursuit of the craft they started figuring out tricks for okay well if i do this i can make it loud but i get a little bit of space and punch back and i can somehow move more air while flatlining the waveform and also the tools themselves kept evolving the programmers were making better and better look ahead limiters and things and, and i think yeah sometime around 2011 and especially around 2013 we started to really hear a lot of recordings that were like, they're loud. They're, I would call them loud and proud, but they move air. They punch. There's spaces in between the notes again, and there's a feeling of dynamic range, even if there isn't a measurable dynamic range the way there used to be. So it's, uh, it's yeah, it's just been an interesting time. Cool. So what are your plans with your album? Do you know uh, about when the tracks will be finished up and... <laughs> Not a maybe, clue. Maybe that's a sore <laughs> question. It used to be, and then I think I'm just we've gotten a little numb to it, because we're like, okay, because it's uh, you know we we're all a bit of uh, we're kind of perfectionists, and we're working to always sort of temper those tendencies. I'm sure a lot of the people listening to your show right now are, are familiar with that phenomenon where you just want to oh, yeah. endlessly <laughs> tweak things endlessly, but at some point you got to draw the line. Um, my plans for the record are similar to my plans for life, which is that I, I'm not actually a big planner. And I'm not really a sort of seat of the pants in the moment person either. I'm somewhere in between where I, I kind of like, I'm always, I got one eye always scanning my environment, looking for avenues and opportunities and possibilities. And I got my other eye on the drawing board, focused exclusively on what I'm supposed to be working on. So I'm really like a, 
I have, I toggle back and forth between do the work that I know I need to be doing and then just glance around and see if there's a next step that reveals itself. And generally, before I finish the work that I'm working on, my eye, my instinct, my radar, whatever you want to call it, will, will catch the sort of next step. And then I'll move towards it. If it's a person asking me for something, I'll say yes. If it's an opportunity, I'll ask them if we can do something or whatever it looks like. And as a result of that sort of approach to life, I don't really worry too much about the far horizon or the future. I just know I, I'm able to conserve my energy and focus on the things that, I'm, uh, that I need to be doing because they're right in front of me and need to be done. And uh, what's coming next is, is obvious. And so right now we're finishing up the record and we're working, we're beginning work on the videos. The videos are the next step because in this world, image and music are almost inseparable now. And my gut tells me that somewhere out beyond the videos, there's licensing and syncing and placement and productions of other media, so movies and, and television and commercials and whatnot. But I'm not really worried about that or thinking about that right now. And, and that might not ever happen. I don't really care. I'm just. It's an enjoyable way to live, an enjoyable way to work. It's just sort of, I keep my focus small. Yeah. In your last episode, I I think it was, you gave some advice to a guy who was, sounded like he was having a major block in his yeah um, composing life. And uh, I thought your advice was great to him. That just, like, you have to maybe actually give up your title as a, budding composer songwriter mm-hmm. for a little while and just like reevaluate and take some time off from that yeah it's because it, we we get trapped in stories i use the word story a lot it's it's just a sort of a it's a habitual thought that we've told ourselves so much that we believe it to be true and whether or not it's true is is something you can just kind of set aside is almost irrelevant because the what matters more is our attachment to the truth of it, you know? And so if for that guy there, I was, I was thinking if he's attached to the story that he's a musician and that that has to look a certain way, and yet his life is showing up to not look that way, then it just causes all these negative judgments and feelings and he's trapped. And there's actually nothing going on there except concepts in the mind, you know? There's really, that's, that's just all invented fantasy, um, his problems are literally made up. And so if you change that story, whatever your story is, even just temporarily, just give yourself some freedom from it and be like, you know what, for the next month, I'm not going to be a musician. I'm going to be a woodworker, whatever. Or I'm going to be a guy who just watches television and just kind of go there with something different. Um, it just gives the mind a, a little bit of space. And in that space, other things oftentimes will reveal themselves or sometimes just taking a little bit of time off and getting a psychic break, you'll find you come back and have the energy to do the things that you w- weren't able to do before. Have you gotten to that point where you felt like you just really needed to take a a long hiatus or anything from, yeah. <laughs> yeah. from your work? Yeah, I'm there right now, actually. Uh, I just maybe 10 days ago realized this, and I was in the kitchen with my lady, and I was like, you know what? I think I'm burned out. Because uh, Kush, we started the company like six years ago, and when we looked back, it became clear that I had not taken off two days in a row in six years. And I was like, oh man, and it's just one of those things where, especially owning your own business coupled with the internet and communications now, it'll it'll never stop. As much as you're willing to give it, it'll take. And so I have, I was like, okay, 
So I'm in the process right now of just buttoning up some loose ends, got my team in communication, be like, what do you need from me? Because on or about June 1st, I'm going to go off the grid for 30 days. Nobody's going to hear from me. And my plan during that time is to just read some books, watch some movies, take some walks around the neighborhood, be with my dogs, and anything else that occurs to me. But I have no agenda other than to just get away from emails, texts, work, uh, communication platform called Slack that the whole team is on. I'm just, I'm taking a month off, which is all the people I work with in Europe, they do that like routinely. (laughs) And so I'm just like, oh, wait a minute. I get it. Yeah. Wow. That is, that's bold. And that sounds like it'll be great, actually. (laughs) I think so. Yeah. I think the first week is probably going to be hell because if I know how the mind works, it's going to be constantly just pinging me and sending all kinds of punishment chemicals into the reward center of my brain being like, this is not good. You need to get back to work. Things are going to go horribly awry. And I'm just going to let those voices have their chatter and, and not talk to them. They, you know, I'm not going to try to shut them up, but that's, that's one of my meditative tricks. I just, I don't try to control my thoughts. I just don't talk to them. And eventually they just go away because they get bored. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess for me, like, um, the podcast, I've been on this routine of like three months on, three months off. Mm. And I don't know. Yeah, just breaking up the year into those chunks really helped me. So that's nice. Yeah. How do you how do you manage a following uh, like that? Like, do you like that? Um, yeah. They're, do, they're, does your following know you're going away for three months and they're there for you when you come back? Um, yeah, they're they are pretty patient with me and uh but my listeners are probably pretty annoyed with me and sad because I decided this is going to be my last year of doing the show. I didn't know that. So, oh. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um so in the fall I'm going to be going on a, a world tour as the grand finale because I I kind of was thinking of it like like a good TV show. I uh, I guess the end is planned for in yeah. insight. Yeah. And so yeah, that's kind of just my mentality now. It's like I really want the end to be solid and then I'll have these this long string of episodes that people can look back on and yeah, that's awesome. Uh so yeah, well congratulations and uh I yeah, I totally support that. Well, I guess one thing so a lot of people who who listen are composers and songwriters but they're maybe kind of at the the first stages of trying to record their music okay so i was trying to think back to like when i was learning about mixing and i i think like when i started i I remember thinking oh eq i get kind of how to use that even though i really didn't probably at the time that (laughs) well um and reverb you can kind of you can tell um but compression was always kind of the hardest to hear yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Do you do you have advice for people on how to get better at mixing with compression? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Compression is, I think, the hardest to hear because it is time domain based. And time domain based, um, what I mean by that is like EQs are frequency domain and it's it's so you you're turning up frequencies and it's very easy to tell when 2k gets louder and 2k gets quieter but if you are compressing a signal and you're not doing too too much compression and then you change the attack from three milliseconds to 10 milliseconds 
that require being able to hear that requires two things. First of all, an extraordinarily acute and attuned ear, but more importantly, a, a monitoring environment that reveals a seven millisecond difference in a tiny little transient of sound. And most monitoring environments, and by monitoring environment, I mean the speakers, where they're placed in the room, the acoustics of the room, uh, where you're sitting in relationship to the speakers and the volume that you're listening at. All those factors come together. And in, in the vast majority of rooms, in my experience, that where people haven't had an acoustician in or they haven't spent you know, well into the five figures to tune it, um, there's going to be various degrees of problems. And sometimes there's huge problems. And un unlike tonal issues in a room where it's, well, it's a little bit bright or it's a little bit dark or whatever, you can compensate for those. Time-based issues, the speed and the way that transients and sound and pressure waves kind of combine and couple and interact inside a contained space like a room, um, they're extremely difficult to control. And so your first problem that everybody has with compression is that literally you can't hear it, these minute differences in the settings of the compressor because they don't exist in your room. They're being masked by the acoustic problems that you have. So my first piece of advice to anybody who's getting started is to stop spending money on gear and start investing time and money in the acoustics of your room. And that will really dramatically improve your ability to hear compression because it'll exist in the space. And then once it's in the space, then you can start tuning your ear to what these things are actually doing. And by and large with compression, until you really know what you're doing, you're better off with slower attacks, faster releases, more modest ratios, and smaller amounts of gain reduction. And if you find that you need more compression, don't dig in deeper with the threshold of that compressor. Add another compressor. Make the attack a little bit faster, the release a little bit slower, the ratio the same or lower, and do a little bit of compression with that. And use serial compression to rein your signals in because generally using two or three gentle compressors on a crazy dynamic signal like a vocal is uh, far, it preserves a lot more of the integrity of the sound and results in something that's both more pleasing to the ear and easier to mix than something where you apply the same amount of overall compression using one compressor. Hmm. I didn't know that was a good thing to do because, I mean, I, I have used multiple compressors before, but I always assumed that I was in some way like doing more work than I should have been, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> or that it would be degrading the signal or something, but probably the degrading is a, just a small little bit. Well, you, gotta, you, know, you have to trust your ears at the end of the day, even to, which is a tricky thing when you're starting off because you know inherently my ears are not trustworthy, and it's, it's actually more your brain That's because your brain is where you hear. Your ears just kind of receive the data. So, but until you've trained your brain to hear these things, you know, you're going to have to do it wrong. That's the, be willing to make mistakes, be willing to make huge mistakes and go too far with things and then dial it in and, and rein it back a little bit. Um, it, the beauty of, and also the curse of the modern workstation is that you can undo, you know, and mm -hmm. you can change things a million times and fine tune. But, but by and large, yeah, you just, you have to learn to trust your ears and Everybody's process is going to be different, so it may be the case that one compressor works better for one person, whereas three compressors works better for somebody else. So these are all rules of thumb. But yeah, just if you put three up and you find that that works better, 
don't get all cerebral about it and be like, mm, yeah, but am I not degrading the sound by running it through three processors? It, if it sounds better to you, trust that and move on. Don't spend too much time on any one thing. That's sure. You know, so. Yeah. And you're an advocate of mixing with your eyes closed, right? When you, when you can? Yes. I mix with my eyes closed and or in a room that's as dark as I can possibly get it. Um, so I don't generally do too much mixing during the day. And that's just part of understanding how the brain works and my brain in particular. I know that when my eyes are open and I'm processing visual data, a huge amount of resources are taken away from my hearing perception. So I'm still hearing things, but I can't focus on it nearly as exquisitely or precisely. So I, I try to deprive my brain of all visual input whatsoever. Um, I have a, a hot corner assigned to my monitor so when i swipe my mouse all the way down into the left and put the pointer in the corner the screen goes dark and i'm doing that all the time when i'm mixing that's another reason i prefer to have uh, as much outboard gear in the equation as possible because i don't need to look at a screen and adjust things while listening that's really hard for me so the darker the room and the more i can just kind of use my hands and tactile feedback to turn a knob around and listen to what's going on the easier it is for me that's great yeah I, I've thought about that actually when listening to orchestras playing live because mm. um, I'll, I'll sometimes just like close my eyes and then I realize like, wow, I'm picking out way more stuff than I was when I had my eyes open. Yeah. But yeah, I, I haven't thought about that with mixing yet. So that's a good tip. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's neurological. I'm, I'm a little obsessed with the brain in general. I just find it's an amazing uh, piece of machinery. And it really is the case that our brains are, they're, they're firing like any other living organism. They have a, a finite amount of energy they can pull on. They can only work so fast and they can only do so many things in any given cycle. And so if you're dividing that energy, by definition, you have less to go to the individual tasks that you're assigning to it. So just turn off your eyes and your ears open up. Yeah. What are your thoughts on mixing on headphones? Um, I do it all the time. It's just to me, it's a, well, I have my primary speakers, Polonis 4288s. I have NS10s, which ironically, they're not my primary speakers, but I spend more time on those than on the big ones. And then I have two pair of headphones and I just look at them all as different reference points. I would hate to be stuck with just headphones. I don't think I could actually pull together a mix that's anywhere near on the level that I would want it to be on because I don't know how to interpret the information coming out of headphones exclusively. But as a check, because um, for as tight as my room is acoustically, I still hear things in the bass region, especially down in the 40 to 50 hertz area. My room is a little sloppy at like 45 hertz. And I put on, uh, I have an AKG uh, set of headphones that I love for that frequency range in the bass and i'll immediately hear like oh yeah the kick is a little heavy there and the bass is a little slow so i'll put a high pass filter on the bass to get it a little faster and i'll attenuate with a shelf the kick drum i'll do you know i'll, I'll just every everything that i listen to whether it's the speakers or the headphones reveals something different to me headphones are also amazing to me for levels of effects if i really want to tuck an effect into a mix headphones because I'll listen through my speakers and think, yeah, that reverb is really tucked in. And then I'll put the headphones on and be like, nope, it's still pretty loud. And so, yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll turn it down. But, but likewise, like, you can make your effects too quiet if you tune them in headphones. 
and then they kind of lose the glue factor that they add to a production. So I've learned to just like, okay, I'm not the biggest fan of reverb in general as an audible effect, but I should be able to hear some reverb in headphones or it's probably going to be a little too dry. Sure. Yeah, I've just gotten in the habit of almost exclusively mixing on headphones and it's probably not the best thing ever, but I don't know. Yeah, I do. I just like that level of detail and whether or not people are listening only on headphones to my mix. um, I don't know. I I mean, you know, if if it works for you, that's really the bottom line. So if you if you mix on headphones and then you come up with a mix that you're happy with and you can move on to the next piece of art, then more power to you. That's all that matters. Yeah. Well, here's a a tough question. Um, If you only had one effect family that you could use for your own music, like either reverb or compression or EQ, what would be the one you'd pick over everything else? Uh, Valium, because that that sounds like a de- <laughs> that sounds like a very depressing world. <laughs> um, this is the dystopian future. Of- yeah. Um, I would say distortion. Oh, uh, okay. Because distortion when used subtly is a form uh, well no matter how you use it it's a form of compression and dynamic range limiting um it's it's a form of eq you can make things brighter with distortion um you can just sort of reshape the transients with gentle saturation so yeah it's kind of it it'll, it'll let you affect the tone and the transient value and the overall dynamic range and the sort of energy level of the so- the sound. You can keep it sleepy or you can make it like it totally aggro, all with distortion. Hmm. Cool. And it's just interesting. To me, dis- distorted sounds are interesting. Not necessarily like fuzzy, hairy, white distortion where you can hear it's grinding away, but like on the song that I sent you, every sound in that mix has been exposed to probably at least a half a dozen, if not a dozen, discrete individual layers and flavors of distortion. There's distortion on the individual drums. There's distortion on the drum bus. There's distortion on the mix bus. Uh, then I ran out to tape and distorted the tape. Then I came back in and distorted it more in the mastering stage, like just clipping it, like every distortions everywhere. And to me, it just adds so much harmonic juice and character. Actually, one of my previous guests, I was just listening to one of his new releases, and he's an amateur mixer. He'll be the first to say that. Mm -hmm. Um, But he did a cool effect that I had never thought of before, and that's he doubled his vocal and applied distortion to one of them, Mm -hmm. and then the other one totally clean. It sounded like... Yeah, 
Yeah, very cool effect. Yeah, that I hadn't thought about. Oh, that's a classic. Um, people do that with bass. They do that with drums. Um, like the Sans amp is one of the sort of classic, popular distortion units for for drums and for bass. You just kind of blow things up with the Sans amp and then blend it back in in parallel. It just it adds density and urgency. And you can play with the blend with automation, you know, in your chorus. You can kind of make the vocal even thicker and hairier, not necessarily in a noticeable way, overtly, but it it has a you know an impact on the emotional experience of the the music. Yeah. Um, I guess another thing that I think people maybe have trouble hearing in mixes is like kind of like compression, the the micro timing things, like in a drum groove, for example. Mm, yeah. Um, as a drummer yourself, like what are some tips for people figuring out how to time, like let's say the performance is a little off and they have to shift things around a little bit. Um, it was just kind of interesting hearing about your thoughts on like which instruments can be a little behind the beat or ahead of the beat and you don't notice as much. Yeah, that's wow. That's such a, man, that's such a rabbit hole. And Again, like it all comes down to the ears. You've got to be able to hear. If you if you try if you just line things up visually, you can definitely create a mathematically tight kind of composition. But you will, in in my experience, you you lose a healthy amount of the soul of whatever it was that the musicians delivered. And so, generally for me, there's a there's a balance point. There's a fulcrum, and I try to find that. Where if I if I have to slide things around and move things around. I'm I'm listening and I really you have to be brave enough to ignore the grid because a lot of times like um I was working on a kind of a a heavy dirge like tune for a friend and the snare drum just needed to be significantly behind the two and the four for the feel to be right and as soon as I moved it ahead there was the drummer liked it the drummer was like yeah that's tight and I'm like yeah but now the song feels snappy and this song doesn't want to feel snappy. This song wants to feel like you're trying to push through a wall of molasses. And I slid it back, and we ended up splitting the difference between where he played it and where he kind of wanted it. And then in the end, everybody was really happy with that. And so you just got to, first and foremost, you have to always be using your ears as the final arbiter of what's working, what's not. And try to pay attention to the mood of the song as much or more as like the, quote, tightness of it. And I find, yeah, I find generally it's okay for bass to be a little lagging behind the kick drum. Uh, and it's okay for guitars to be a little bit ahead. Um, vocals, anything goes with vocals. But generally, that's one of the few instruments that I find if I just grab the singer's track and put a delay on it of like, I don't know, 5 to 15 milliseconds. Like just delay the whole track by that much it lays them back into the pocket and sit, seats them in the groove a little more because more than anybody else, singers in the studio tend to rush, in my experience. So just kind of easing them back a little bit kind of helps out the groove generally. Things on the brain are making me Tell me I might have done it already To tie this back to the, my last interview, 
Um, I was talking with some songwriters who they were writing their lyrics around avoiding S's because the singer has a lot of sibilance. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, I was just listening back to one of your episodes and you're talking about some techniques that they could use that would be not as extreme as changing the lyrics. Um, yeah. Do you, do you want to share some tips on that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I can't remember what exactly you're referencing, but um, I mean, oh, Lord. The... Oh, uh, well, it's something about chopsticks. Oh, yeah. That's, a, that's an old trick of um, you put a pencil or a chopstick, or actually I can't remember if, if we're talking about the tying a stick to a microphone or putting it in between your teeth. Those are two totally different exercises. Um, there's a school of, of singing that's taught, especially out here in LA, it's hugely popular, uh, called speech level singing. I don't necessarily think that it's the be-all and end-all of how to sing, but they have a lot of amazingly useful tricks for getting your bad habits out of the way in singing. And one of the things that they have you do is that you put a chopstick across, like if you turn the chopstick sideways, press it into the corners of your lips, open your mouth, and then bite down on it so that it's, it's right behind your canine teeth, your pointy teeth. And then you just hold that chopstick there, and then you sing. You kind of have to make this kind of sound there. You know, you can't really move your jaw. And the first thing that that will point out to you is all the ways that your tongue is getting in the way of everything. And sibilance is caused almost exclusively by the way the, the tongue presses up against the roof of the mouth and the front of the mouth and the shape that it makes. And so the, the tighter that space is, the more of a bright, small, pointed S you get. So the chopstick can help you to sort of become aware of that part of your anatomy and, and how to have more control over it. Another amazing thing to do is to take a, uh, just take like a dish towel, stick your tongue out, and then hold your tongue between your index finger and your thumb with the dish towel because your tongue is a little slippery to hold with just your bare fingers. And then hold your tongue outside your mouth and learn to sing like that. And that's another way that you'll realize all the, like your tongue, most singers, their tongue is overly active. And it's amazing how little your tongue actually needs to move and definitely how little it needs to move around in the mouth in order to make a bunch of clear, intelligible sounds. And by getting that tongue to be less active and in the way, problems like excessive sibilance, um, problems like excessive strain in the back of the throat and everything, they, they, I don't know that they go away, but they definitely get a lot better. Cool. Yeah. Well, I have uh, one last question, um, and it's from my previous guests we do a question chain here on the show okay so if you could compose music for any book what would that be oh my any book i would say a scanner darkly by philip k dick cool yeah i i haven't read that <laughs> it's a, but it's a, it's a strange book what would your music sound like probably a lot like it sounds right now <laughs> <laughs> that was my first thought is, well, where does our music fit? It fits in a movie like that where it's just a bunch of people that are doing a bunch of weird drugs and having weird <laughs> conversations and reality is kind of folding in on itself and you can't quite tell what's real and what's not. Because my other, my other immediate thought was Naked Lunch by William Burroughs. Oh, <laughs> well, I haven't read that one either. So I haven't made it all the way through. I've started it more than a few times. I'm a big fan of the movie. I love the movie. Nice. Do you have a a question for my next guest, then. Um, 
what is the overarching or predominant thought that threads its way through all of their decisions when composing and arranging a song? Ooh, that's tough. Mm. <laughs> it's easy for me because it's I've answered that question in, through the last two years of this process. It's space. Is how much? What can we do to open up more space to preserve the space to create more space? That and that that for me was the question because that was the most uninstinctive and challenging thing. My instinct, having grown up on prog rock and classical music, was put more sound in there. <laughs> and so learning to put less sound in and to actually like be okay with moments in the song where almost you almost go to digital black just like so yeah i'm always curious what what's on other people's minds when they're when they're writing yeah well i look forward to hearing more of your songs when they come out thank and, you uh, listening to more of your podcast so yeah likewise yeah. and thanks thanks, thanks again for, for coming on, on. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and, and thanks for the, the thought-provoking questions. It was, it was highly enjoyable. You wrote the theme for your podcast, right? Yes. Or, yeah, I love that. Thanks. Yeah, that was cop my... show style. Exactly, that's exactly what it was. I was like, I'm going to write an intro theme to a 70s cop show and try to make it sound like it was recorded in 1975. There you have it, my talk with Gregory Scott. You can find his music under the name Sneaky Little Devil on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash ubk-1. You can find Gregory's podcast, the UBK Happy Fun Time Hour, on iTunes or at soundcloud.com slash ubk-happy-funtime. That little song snippet you heard from a past guest was Cameron Scott Boster. The song is called Oak off his new album, Galaxy Wanderer. Check it out at cameronscottboster.bandcamp.com. You can always get in touch with me by emailing me, charlie at composerquest.com. And if you want to stay posted on my world tour, sign up for my email list at composerquest.com slash email. Now, time for... Charlie's I want to share the results of our MIDI Remix quest because I think it's a fascinating experiment. The concept was that composers would create MIDI-based compositions, then send the raw MIDI data to other composers to remix in their own style. The fun part is that the remixers didn't know what instruments and sounds the original composer used, so they had to experiment on their own. In all, 11 composers participated, and I want to play samples from each original composition and remix. If you want to listen to or download the full tracks, visit composerquest.bandcamp.com and find the MIDI Remix album. Let's start with my track Genesis, which, as you heard about in my last production lesson, I was going for kind of a Sonic the Hedgehog feel. My remixer was Dan Wheeler, and he had this to say about his remix process. When I got Charlie's MIDI to remix, I was guessing that he was going to go all 8 bits with his rendering, so I figured I'd try to go as far as I could in the opposite direction 
And I've been learning to use uh, East West Quantum Leap's Hollywood Orchestra and uh, symphonic choirs. And I've been practicing with them and getting a little bit better with them. And I thought this was a perfect opportunity to dig in a little bit deeper. So I took as much of Charlie's stuff as I could to turn it into percussive kinds of stuff so I could showcase clarinets, a tuba, and the choirs. The only tweaks I made to the MIDI itself was uh, doubling the octave for his crazy melody and... I had to add one more note at the end of the, the vocals so they wrapped up in a satisfying way. But it was a really fun track to work on. Thanks a lot for the fun quest, Charlie. Nice job on the remix, Dan. It was fun hearing my chiptune melodies orchestrated with this epic choir. For Dan's own composition, here's what he did. For this quest, I decided to limit myself to Ableton Live Standards default sounds, and I processed some of them so they were more interesting and inspired me a little bit more with uh, the distorted edge and I laid down the groove, I improvised just a little bit and came up with something that I liked all right, fit into the time frame. And uh, the last sound that I added was vocosin and it sounds like a voice repeating the word yeah. I used it sparingly to drop that nugget in and that's how I got the title for the track yeah, yeah. Dan's track was remixed by Paul Sampson. Again, the remixers had no idea what the original tracks actually sounded like. So it was a surprise to Paul when he heard Dan's track with the original instruments. Paul said, It's funny how my remix of Dan's piece sounds like an intro to the real funkiness of his original, which sounds much cleaner and wider than mine. Paul Sampson created a tune he called Sploring, inspired by the life of a cloud compositions in our Game Music Melee episode. He says, I was reminded of something similar I'd started at the new year, but never completed because it wasn't going anywhere. But that's what clouds do, isn't it? Go nowhere. So I hereby release it into the wild. Paul's track was remixed by Brian Schumann. You might remember that Brian Schumann's interview a few episodes ago actually inspired this challenge, 
so I was happy Brian could participate. Here's his original called The Simple Life. Maynard here to discuss the MIDI quest that you gave to us. I found this to be a great learning experience and had a whole lot of fun with it. From my remix of Brian Schumann's piece, when I first heard it, it sounded like it was a great melody and written for a piano, so I wanted to go for something a little bit different. I decided to start with a more of a percussive melody on the marimba and thought that a the counter melody would work really well as a synth-based instrument. After hearing all this, I decided that a string harmony felt like it would fit really well with it, so I pulled that together. For my original piece, my daughter had been learning the Irish fiddle and was asking me to write a piece for her to play. And I myself love Irish music, and I decided that, hey, this would work because it was perfect timing. So I wrote a little piece that felt like I was kind of skipping through the meadow with my daughter. Didn't have a lot of time to write it, so I went with a kind of a speed writing challenge on this as well. David did a wonderful job of turning my small little theme into a full composition that sounded more like a, a map theme for an RPG video game. It came out really well and it was a lot of fun to listen to. fun hearing how both of these pieces changed dramatically just from the different instruments that were chosen as well as any little remix ideas that were thrown in. I learned a great many new techniques doing this, had a lot of fun, and I want to thank you for the challenge. Thanks for the commentary, Mike. David Boban, Mike's remixer, composed an original piece called Quest Level 1. Like me, David said he was also inspired by Sonic, he says something like Green Hill Zone in Sonic 1, for example. David's piece was remixed by Michael Chadwick. Michael Chadwick's original piece wins for best name. It's called The Entire Jar of Sauce.
my name is Paul Hickey. I'm based out of Richmond, Virginia. I just wanted to share my, my experience with this MIDI remix quest. I was really excited about it because I, I think I've always had this dream of being like a video game <laughs> composer. Um, but I've you know never been able to do something like that. Uh, Michael Chadwick's piece was really, really cool. The first thing I did when I got his piece was uh, listen to the first couple of lines together. Um, and so these first two lines, one of them was actually a, a drum track, and I had no idea um, because I only viewed the MIDI together. I never viewed them separate. So I was seeing all these like crazy tight chords and, and these these lines of melody, and it reminded me a lot of like this marimba music that I've seen before and, and heard before, and, and it just had all these like driving interesting rhythm, so I, I switched over to Marimba and I really liked the result. Uh, the other interesting thing that I liked about his piece was they had this line that was like, uh, like do do da da do do da da do da 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 And I switched it over to a drum set just for kicks and giggles because I had tried out some things before and I wasn't really finding something I liked. But I switched it over to drum set, and it ended with this this big bass hit, and like it exited with these delicate wind chimes, and I, I thought it was really really neat, so I wanted to keep it, um, and I left it there, and it, I thought it had a good result. Paul Hickey actually did two original compositions. Here's the first, called Final Level. Hey Composer Quest listeners, Harry Gibson here. Big thanks to Charlie for all the great quests. I missed the last 18, so I was pretty happy to be a part of this one. As for Paul's remix, I got my brother Liam to do that instead. After all, he's much more experienced with this than I am. Unfortunately, we broke a couple of rules with the contest. We only used select material from the original, which wasn't intentional at the time. But when I saw what he came up with, I thought it would be okay to leave it fairly minimalistic. And I'm happy with what he did with it. So my original track was composed in Reaper, it's quite simple, it's uh, one layer and eight seconds long, and I came up with it in about 30 minutes or so. It was also my second time using MIDI, so I just inputted the notes manually one by one until I had something. I had to listen to Paul Hickey's remix of it, and I have to say the choice of instrument and additional arrangement fits very nicely together, so well done Paul. I didn't even think of an organ when I made it. Harry Gibson's piece was one line of melody that had come to me, and the first the first thing that I thought of was just like, really 
somber like funeral march in a way and so uh, naturally i thought of like churches and things like that and then that came to me as like an organ and then it also had these like these chromatic little features in them these little triplets and i really wanted to stress out the uh dissonance so i wrote another line for it and that was the result What I took away from this contest is how refreshing it is to see people build upon a piece of music with a fresh mind, sometimes in ways you weren't necessarily thinking of at the time. So thanks again, Charlie, for another successful quest. I'll see you guys at the next one. Thanks, Harry and Paul, for the commentary. Here's Paul's second piece called A New Journey Begins. Hey everyone, I'm David Sellers. This was my very first time participating in one of Charlie's composer quests, so I was very excited to give it a shot. Now, when I got the song I'd be remixing, I was excited. I saw it had six layers, which would be fun since my song only had four. When I opened it up, however, I was surprised to see that there were subtracks totaling 75 in all. I wasn't sure at first how to get started. My first attempt, I tried to choose a different instrument for each of the 75 tracks. I was only able to assign instruments to about 50 of them before my computer crashed. Each time I tried to add an, another one, it would crash, so I had to cancel that plan. Second attempt, I chose just seven instruments, and I alternated between them on the various tracks in the first four layers, so that each layer had most of them, some of them had a few less. And then I chose four different bass instruments for layers five and six. Uh, I exported each layer separately as a WAV file and then combined them into one, but when I heard the final product, I wasn't really satisfied. So I started over. This time I only chose four instruments, one per layer, and set every subtrack in each layer to just that one instrument. Then I had layers 5 and 6, where I used the same four bass instruments that I used in attempt 2, exported each uh, part as a wave, and tried that out, and I liked that one better, so I submitted that one. I've recently been taking some lessons in keyboard, since my background growing up was saxophone throughout school, and I really think learning some keyboard, piano, will help me use chords more effectively when composing. But I've only just started this, so I set out to make a very simple song with what my teacher said was a very common and maybe overused chord progression, just one, six, five, four. I really enjoyed making this song, and I think I could probably build on it given more time. After listening to all the originals and remixes, I think everyone did a great job. I think I could really learn a lot from some of the other composers. It was a, overall a very fun project, and I hope to participate in more. Thanks, David. 
Now let's hear what Tim Brandle did with the remix. Finally, our last piece, Tim's original, called Cave Dive. That was Tim's remixer and I was excited to hear that his piece had a really interesting chord progression. Before I leave you with my remix of Tim's piece, I want to remind you that you can find all of these music production lessons as a sub-podcast. Just search for Charlie's Music Production Lessons in your favorite podcast app. And again, if you want to download these full compositions, visit composerquest.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening, and now here's my remix of Tim Brandle's Cave Dive. <laughs>